Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you guys reached out about doing this, I had to go and revisit that record. And when I revisit that record, it's, I want to say it's like 60% of sounds, vocals, words, tones, uh, lyrics that I don't even know when, where, or how they came from. That's how deep we was in it. And you can ask anybody that's doing this, I guarantee you they feel the same. It was it was a, a, a spiritual moment and a whole journey. Seriously, you know, but that's the beauty of it. That's Kendrick Lamar in 2021 talking to me about his 2015 album To Pimp a Butterfly. In the discography, it's the point between two landmarks. Kendrick's breakthrough album Good Kid Mad City from 2012 and Damn from 2017. The first rap album, the first pop music album, period to win the Pulitzer Prize for music. Since 2015, To Pimp a Butterfly has sold more than a million copies. But it's not a triple platinum album like Damn or Good Kid. So why are we talking about it on a show about big hits? There's a few answers, but it's really one answer. Anybody can make a big hit record. Sometimes it doesn't even take talent. What really defines you is how you follow the big hit, how you carry it. What you do when all of a sudden nobody can tell you anything. You can consolidate your position or you can turn that challenge back on the world. Do what you've never done. Turn the music inside out. Put all your inner conflict on the table. You can choose to not just give people what they want. And sometimes in doing that, you end up giving them what they need before they even know it. People are really waiting for him to tell them something. And we expected a certain thing out of Kendrick because he'd shown us the way he thinks, the way he processes, the depth of his storytelling. Everybody knew, I knew, that Kendrick's next work would blow up and be something massive. You just knew it. He's struggling with his newfound success and all the pressures that they bring on and then just let it all out once he get in that booth. Well, he was not afraid of anything, which is clear now. Like, you know, you listen back to it and it's kind of like that was a, like a shot of light. You know, the, the work of a real artist is fucked up. 
everybody want to ask about the Pimp a Butterfly, but nobody want to ask. Man, we suffered so much death through that album and hardship and hardcore things that nobody would never know. We're reaching for enlightenment. We, you know, we're getting ready to turn into those um, beings of light. For it to become the statement, it was like, hell yeah. Like, hell yeah. That's power. For as long as you use it right. Got to use it right. Anybody else saying that these stories is, is wrong? They wasn't there for sure. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. This is a show about the biggest hits of our time. The people who make them, how they make them, how they become huge, and the surprising things that happen once they're out in the world. This season, we're talking about the genesis and the impact of one of the most acclaimed albums of the 21st century, Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. Chapter One. Hello, Kendrick. It's a Friday night in 2011. Kendrick's on stage at the Music Box Theater in Los Angeles. He's wearing a suit and he's smiling because that is Snoop Dogg singing his praises. Nigga, you got the torch, nigga. You better run with it. You better run with it, nigga, because it's yours. On stage with him are two other L.A. rap superheroes, corrupt and Compton rapper The Game. Oh, and Dr. Dre's watching from the mezzanine. It's sort of like a graduation and sort of like Snoop metaphorically tapping Kendrick on both shoulders with a sword. The West Coast living legends are in the building and they're telling a 24-year-old Kendrick Lamar that he's up next. It was an educated guess on Snoop's part. By then, Kendrick was already an underground hero who'd been putting out mixtapes for years. As the first artist signed to the independent label Top Dog Entertainment, or TDE, he was the anchor of a roster that also included rising L.A. rappers like Absol and Schoolboy Q. Back then, the man born Kendrick Lamar Duckworth went by K-Dot. Under that name K-Dot, it was like uh, we were busy trying to fit into industry standards and do everything that the industry want us to do in order for us to you know, succeed in it. And it wasn't working at all. TDE label president Terrence Henderson, much better known as Punch, told us that was because a rapper needs a superhero name. Or so they once thought. We're making the girls song. We're making the club song. We sounding like other people, like just trying to do everything that they're doing. Once we figured out it's not working, that was around the time the whole thing of get more personal and changed the name. That's all that was coming together at the same time. A few years after the name change came the album Good Kid Mad City, Kendrick's major label debut. Executive produced by Dr. Dre, it's a concept album as musically and narratively ambitious 
not to mention as funny and street-level colloquial as Dre's own solo breakthrough, The Chronic, or Snoop's doggy style. I am a Good Kid came out in 2012 in the middle of October. It went on to make every list you can think of. Albums of the year, albums of the decade, the 500 best albums of all time, the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. After Good Kid, Kendrick wasn't just a West Coast phenomenon. He was a phenomenon without a qualifier, a category killer. Here was an L.A. MC who wrote super lyrical, convoluted East Coast-style raps about street life in Compton, but could also create songs like Swimming Pools, a dark meditation on the undertow of hereditary alcoholism that became a top 10 hit. People started calling Kendrick the best rapper alive. It was a title he had self-applied as early as 2005 when he put out his second mixtape. It's a title anyone can self-apply. But it matters when other people start saying it. And when a lot of people are saying it, the rules change. For one thing, the best rapper alive need not keep your name out of his mouth. In the summer of 2013, Big Sean put out a song called Control. You're listening to it now. I can never remember what Control sounds like. I only know it as the song where Kendrick nods respectfully to exactly four of his peers... Jay-Z, Eminem, Nas, and Outkast Andre 3000, and then does this. We usually homeboys with the same niggas I'm rhyming with, but this is hip-hop and them niggas should know what time it is. And that goes for Jamaica, Big Crit, Wale, Pusha T, Meek Mills, ASAP Rocky, Drake, Big Sean, J. Electron, Tyler McMiller. I got love for you all, but I'm trying to murder you niggas. Trying to make sure your core fans never heard of you niggas. They don't want to hear not one more noun or verb from you niggas. What is competition? I'm trying to raise the bar high. Who's trying to jump and get it? You're a better horse than a skydiver. And that's after Kendrick proclaims himself both the offspring of Machiavelli, i.e. a son of Tupac Shakur, and the king of New York. Of New York, New York. Whole rap wars have been fought over that sort of thing, but not lately. For the East Coast, it was the audacity, <laughs> right? The audacity. This is Rhapsody, whose feature on the Tupimpa Butterfly song Complexion is the only guest rap verse on the album. Because we hadn't heard that in a while, not from somebody from our generation. For him to emerge and to say the shit that he said, to name people out by name, people weren't doing that. Right. Like he like, yeah, you, 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 you. And these are like some of the homies. Right. And that's what hip hop is about. It's like, bro, cool. We cool. And I respect you when it come to this microphone. Fuck you. You know what I'm saying? Like, excuse me, but yeah, fuck you, bro. Either come with it or don't come at all. He knows how to create moments and the control verse was a moment. In a way, if you were mentioned in the control verse, it was a compliment although not everybody saw it that way. Some of the people Kendrick named wrote songs responding to Control. Some people he hadn't named did too. But Control wasn't really an invitation to battle. It was Kendrick's way of formally accepting the crown that many people believed was already his. King Kute. I got a bone to pick. I don't want you monkey mouth motherfucker sitting in my throne again. King Kunta, track three on To Pimp a Butterfly, builds on the antagonistic spirit of control, but names no names. 
Sure, everyone assumed the line scolding rappers for using ghostwriters was aimed at Drake, who'd been accused around that time of leaning on outside help. But unlike Control, King Kunta is Kendrick presenting the whole best rapper alive thing as a foregone conclusion. He names no one else because there is no one else. It's his throne. He's tired of explaining this. I was gonna kill a couple rappers, but they did it to themselves. Everybody's suicidal, they didn't even need my help. They should have said, elementary, I'd probably go to jail if I shoot at your identity and bounce to the left. Stuck a flag in my city, everybody's screaming, Compton, I should probably run from here when I'm done. To be honest, and I put that on my mama and my baby boo too. 20 million walking out the court, baby, whoa, whoa. Time to funk it down. There's three different versions of King Kunta. The original was way completely different, super jazzy. It didn't have the groove that it had. Mark Soundwave Spears was 18 when he watched a 16-year-old Kendrick Lamar blow the doors off a hole-in-the-wall studio in Gardena, California. He's been a primary producer on every major Kendrick album, and he's part of the musical nucleus of To Pimp a Butterfly. Played it for Kendrick. He was like, nah, this is hard, but... I feel like it should get a little bit more groovier. I was like, all right, bet. Let me try something. When people talk about To Pimp a Butterfly, the first reference point that comes up is jazz. But this record also has its feet planted up to the ankles in the heavy funk of the 1970s, as filtered through the music of West Coast gangster rap icons like Compton legend DJ Quick. Go back, strip it down. Added a flute to it, I remember. (laughs) It was actually a good flute. Um, Pianos, it was a... It was still super jazzy, but it was different. And I just remember Kendrick saying, nah, it has to be simpler. Everything else around it is kind of complex. We need a simple moment where it breaks down. He started beatboxing. I was like, oh. Soundwave produced King Kunta with Thundercat, another member of the inner circle on this album and one of the best bass players in the world. That's part of what made To Pimp a Butterfly unique. The players weren't just collaborating with Kendrick. They were pairing off, collaborating with one another. I remember me and Thundercat, I was in his apartment, and I just remember explaining to him, just go the most unexpected route for this next note. So that's why when you hear in the hook, it just switches into that down note, and it just kind of makes no sense, but it does. It's like, it just drops you, like you drop with the beat. I don't know, it's kind of one of the most... Infections groove that we've ever done together. And we literally made that song in about 15, 20 minutes. And I said, this is perfect. Sent to the dot. And he was just like, this is exactly what I needed. Recorded his verse that night. Within 24 hours, the song got its first rave review. From Pharrell Williams, an eventual To Pimp a Butterfly contributor who knows a thing or two about making a big hit. We went to Pharrell that next day. And we played it for him, and he did the frill, and he put his hat over his head, like, this is unapologetic black right here. Oh, my God. Like, he just flipping out. But with King Kunta, Kendrick is hitting a note of bluster and bravado that is not going to be the dominant mode on the rest of this album. To Pimp a Butterfly is musically fearless, the work of somebody who's as fired up creatively as he's ever been. But on an even deeper level, it's a work born from a place of crisis and confusion. It's Kendrick wrestling with temptation and survivor's guilt and the knowledge that people want something more from the best rapper alive than just raps. I remember you was conflicted, misusing your influence. 
Hello, Kendry. What's wrong, man? In a series of interludes on this album, Kendrick reads a poem that mentions waking up screaming in a hotel room. In 2015, he confirmed to NPR that this really happened. The feeling, he said, was, how am I influencing so many people on this stage rather than influencing the ones that I have back home? At the end of a song called You, Kendrick puts us there, in that Raptor hotel room, one haunted night, somewhere in America. Back at the hotel room. It doesn't matter who you are, even if who you are is the best rapper alive. Sooner or later, you end up alone in a room with nothing but questions and the feeling of being far from home. I heard a lot of stuff that was like, that never even came out. Songs to this day that I fell in love with that was super personal, but it's, it's for him. Like, it's therapy for him is probably super personal for him. This is Dave Free. Dave's known Kendrick since they were in high school. He was Kendrick's manager. He was co-president of Top Dog Entertainment for a while. And now he and Kendrick are business partners in a media company called PG Lang. In the early 2000s, Kendrick was just a high school kid with a gift and a dream. But guys like that need guys like Dave, who was active and ambitious and owned a lot of impressive looking electronic gear for a high school kid. I had, like, a bunch of DJ equipment, and I wanted to impress everybody because that's the type of guy I was. This shit wasn't even, like, plugged in or working. It was, like, just, I just plugged everything up to everything just to make it seem like I had, like, this kitted-out studio. But Kendrick came through, and Kendrick was just, like, he was just super quiet, wasn't really saying too much, really trying to fill me out more so. And then we started recording. I remember I had this little mini-disc recorder and a, a sure microphone with a sock over it. And we're just passing that thing around. Everybody was just laying their bars. And Kendrick's the last one to rap. I remember the rap to this day. And the first time I heard him, I was just like blown away. I was like, this dude is something, something special with this dude. On the cover of the deluxe edition of Good Kid Mad City, there's a picture of a minivan. That was Kendrick's mom's actual 1996 Chrysler Town and Country. Kendrick and Dave put miles on it, racing across town to record at Dave's brother's house. We were leaving the studio at 4 in the morning, going to school at 7 in the morning, like multiple nights, you know. And me and Kendrick talk about that to this day. It's like, man, we were, we, were, we were so reckless. Oh, my God, my brother lived off High Park and 10th Ave in one of the craziest neighborhoods ever. And we used to be leaving there like 4 in the morning just like it was nothing, you know, like driving my car and like got banged on so many times. This is the point where Dave starts looking after Kendrick. He's sort of being born as a manager here, whether he knows it or not. When you have something to lose, it's like now, it's like, fuck, you know what I'm saying? Like, damn, okay. I remember every time I would drop him off, I would feel that for myself in him. And I know he would feel that for me, like, you know, because he would be like, you home? You know what I mean? You home? You made it? Okay, cool. 
You know, then you can like kind of rest. Like you gonna stay in the house. You ain't going nowhere. Cool. Cool. I tell people all the time, like we're blessed to be able to have Kendrick in the music business because he don't do music for that. He do music for a form of therapy, a form of expression. So what we do get is a glimpse of how he wants to let you in. Screaming in the hotel room. Do you know that story? Do you know the backstory of that mm-hmm. that moment? Mm-hmm. Are you? Can you talk no. about it? No, that's you know. Can't give him everything. It gets to a point where you got to save some of yourself for yourself. Compton, mythologized as a war zone in countless gangster rap songs, is a city. And a city is never just one thing. But the Compton way of death is real. Kendrick saw his first murder when he was five years old. A neighborhood dealer shot in front of Kendrick's apartment complex. I think, like, when you see that much death around you, and I think, you you know, instead of, like, guilt, it's more like uh, appreciation that you still are alive. This is Taz Arnold from the L.A. collective Sarah Creative Partners. He's one of many contributing producers on To Pimp a Butterfly. Like Kendrick, Taz grew up in South Central Los Angeles and lived with the same sense of danger. It's like musical chairs. Like, it's no telling, like, really, like, you know, when one of these tragic things can strike, you know what I'm saying, whoever, at whatever point. So, you know, it makes you grateful, like, have gratitude, as well as sorrow, and you know, you're sad, but you also learn to be grateful for which you had, the life you are left with. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's a trip, it's deep. Kendrick's close friend and business partner, Dave Free, again. That trauma is so deep and so thick to this day, you know what I mean? It's never ending, you know? Yeah. Because it was always something happening, you know, it was just like, how close are you to that individual that it happened to? In the years after Good Kid Mad City, around 2013, Kendrick lost a number of friends to violence. He's spoken about some of them in interviews, written rhymes about them. Names like Pup, S. Braze, Chad Keaton. This is the vertigo that comes with being suddenly famous. Kendrick was out there touring on a smash hit debut album, then coming back to Compton to go to funerals. His friend Chad Keaton was wounded in a drive-by shooting in July 2013. Kendrick was in touch with him from the road after it happened. Chad was a really hard one for Kendrick. It was really hard for him because Chad was like younger than us, you know, like a little bro. And we talked to him. We were supposed to go see him and we didn't even get to see him. But we talked to him on FaceTime. I remember, i never forget it, he FaceTimed me. And we was on the bus talking to him, and we were telling him like, "Bro, we about to come back and see you. Like, we gonna cut, we gonna try to cut this run short and get back to you." And we didn't make it back to see him before he passed. Chad died in August 2013 at 23. Kendrick and Dave were close to Jason Keaton, Chad's older brother. When Jason went to prison, he asked Kendrick to make him a promise. Jason just asked him like, "Yo, just look out for little bro, man." And that was his, that was like a responsibility. So when that happened, it was just like, man, like, kind of felt like he like let him down, you know, in a sense. 
but that survivor's remorse is real, man, because you feel that shit. Like, you traveling and you hearing the bad news like you, as you traveling. And the first thing you got to think about is, like, okay, for this scenario to happen, there's going to be a reaction. So now you got to, like, you got to use your superpower to, like, calm people down. And I was I, that was a thing that was, like, a hard, I think was really hard for him because, it's like, how you calm somebody down when you feel the same way? You feel like you want to go get some revenge, you know what I'm saying? Like, seeing him battle with that on the road was, like, hard because it's, like, it was real. It's, like, this person takes somebody you love, no matter how much you say it in the rap, you still got to feel it. You still got to live with it. You still got to deal with it. You human, too. You know when it come, creeps up on you when you get bored. That's when you can't run from it. And now you got to be on stage. You got to do this. You got to get dressed. You got you to do this. You got to go here. You got to do interview. You got to do so many things that jump that can jump in front of the conversation. And but then once you turn off that bunk at night, it's the, it's the one thing, that, that lingering thing hits you in your head. So it's like, yeah, then, but, you, but then the next day you back up at it again. So you suppress. On To Pimp a Butterfly, everything Kendrick has been suppressing comes out in the song You. It barely feels like a rap song. It feels like a spiral of drunken self-recrimination that happens to rhyme. Are you the reason why mama them leaving? No, you ain't shit. You say you love them. I know you don't mean it. I know you irresponsible, selfish. You deny you can't help it. Your trials and tribulations are burden. Everyone felt it. Everyone heard it. Multiple shots, corners crying out. You were deserted. Where was your antennas again? Where was your presence? Where was your support that you pretend? You ain't no brother. You ain't no disciple. You ain't no friend. A free never leave company for profit. Or leave his best friend, little brother. You promised you watch him before they shot him. Where was your antennas? On the road, bottles and benches. You FaceTime the one time that's unforgiven. You even FaceTime instead of a hospital visit. Guess you thought he'd recover well. Third surgery, they couldn't stop the bleeding for real. Then he died, got himself and said, You fucking failed. You ain't tried. To capture this rock bottom point on record, Kendrick really took himself there surprising even his longtime collaborators. Punch, the president of Top Dog Entertainment, was there for the U session. Cut all the lights out. I just really went in. Got all of those emotions out. That time he actually went in the booth, turned off all the lights, and you just knew something was different. Here's producer Soundwave again. Going back to that, like, I'm about to tear up. Like, that was deep. I've never seen him like that. Like, I've seen them experiment on trying to get different things out, but to actually pull that emotion out, it's kind of like, in my head, I felt him bombarding himself with every hard thought that's hitting him at that moment, just to get that feeling. This is the first verse, where Kendrick raps about a younger family member getting pregnant and the regret he feels about letting that happen. You ain't no leader. This is Kendrick poking holes in his own hype. Being crowned best rapper alive always comes with expectations, power and responsibility. When you really have the range when you have the reach, when people perceive in you the potential to change minds, to change lives, 
That's got to be flattering and humbling, but also disorienting. Everybody's telling you that the world is yours. And meanwhile, you feel powerless. You feel false. You is Kendrick yelling at the man in the mirror, the freshly minted superstar, the young god who couldn't save his friends, sitting with all that loss and pain. This is the kind of moment that forces you to change. Change the language. Change the sound. Look outside yourself for guidance. Study the people who came before you. Figure out how they did it. Or seek them out and ask them how they did it. Funk for the Jones in your bones. After Good Kid, Mad City, he was studying those greats. James Brown was a big one. It was, well, I remember we chased Ronald Ozzy down for months, for months to connect with him. It was all a combination, a combination of like, these stories are not done. We'll walk, we walk down their roads to get to where we are and, to, and we're reaping the benefits of that. So, how do I collect, how I tell, collect this story? Everybody in Kendrick's orbit has a different idea about where and how the process of making To Pimp a Butterfly got started. Kendrick's longtime friend and business partner, Dave Free, says it began with Kendrick taking a series of deep dives into music history. I would say, from my perspective, it was when he started studying Prince incredibly heavily. Like, it was like insane how much, like, he, he became obsessed with Prince. Because you're trying to get Prince on Pimp Butterfly. We went out, did a session with him. People don't even know. I'm probably saying too much. And yeah, I said too much. All right, I'm sorry. Keep going. That's right. Toward the end of the process of making the album, Kendrick and Co. paid a visit to the most famous person ever to work from home in Chanhassen, Minnesota. He told me don't ever touch his ping pong paddle. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Prince don't care, man. He don't care. He doing him. Like, that's what we learn the most. Like, do you. Like, you know, do you. You know, do it with poise. Do it with respect. Do it with intention. Do it with purpose. But do you. Prince died in 2016, just over a year after To Pimp a Butterfly came out. If any recordings exist of him making music with Kendrick, they're probably in somebody's vault. But other legends did make it to the album. Yo. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad to be here. It's everything about this feel right. <laughs> Happy birthday, by the way. I feel like I get to say that still. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we're going we gonna to celebrate all year. We sat down with George Clinton in Los Angeles about five weeks after the founder and ringleader of the band's Parliament and Funkadelic turned 80. I never planned to stop. I always planned to keep going, so... I feel like this was supposed to be going on right about now. You always, you always thought you'd get to this place and be yeah, out. yeah. I was gonna find an excuse to get here somehow. You know what George's deal is? He started Parliament Funkadelic and then did whatever he wanted with it. Cosmic slop, Afrofuturist science fiction philosophy, and a guitarist in a diaper. The profound rolled up with the profane. Anything the squares couldn't hang with. 
each time that shift change, when the new kids come along, they're going to be doing something so radical that to make parents say, what are they talking about? That was us in the 50s with pow, 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 pow. What are you talking about? So when you hear, you hear him spitting the beat, it's a new paradigm shift. And I learned that if the music get on your nerve, that's the new music. Pay real close attention to that music. It'll keep you from getting too old too fast. So it's 2013 and Kendrick's on the road. On tour. On the Yazoo tour. Oh, sorry. On the Yeezus. It's like Kanye. It's when he was on tour with Kanye West. So it's Yeezus. Like Jesus. Like Jesus. Yeezus. Yeezus. Oh. On tour. On the Jesus. (laughs) On the Yeezus tour. To me, the beginning of this project happened when Kendrick was on the Yeezus tour. On the Yeezus tour. When Kanye offered Kendrick the slot on the Yeezus tour, they were about to turn it down. Kendrick wanted to go right back into the studio. He was itching to get started on the next album. Kanye, being Kanye, went bigger and said Kendrick could have two tour buses, one for travel and one with a studio in it. It was the first time I've ever seen a, in my time where just someone had a proper studio on the tour bus. This is Flying Lotus, producer, recording artist, great nephew of Alice Coltrane, and key player in the L.A. beat scene, a circle of musicians making way out electronic music rooted in funk and hip-hop. And on the opening few days of the tour, I was on the bus, too. And I remember waking up to, like, the weirdest sounds, you know? It was like... And then, you know, I'd hear some rapping or whatever, and I'd come to find out that it was, like, some... Kanye thing that he passed on to Kendrick to see if, you know, something would happen. Flylo, as he's sometimes known, remembers sharing music with Kendrick on that tour, including some of George Clinton's music. I remember he was hearing all types of music around that, that time, and he was playing a lot of beats and listening to a lot of stuff. But I think when I started playing him a lot of the kind of funk-inspired stuff from, like, George Clinton something about it you know he he hit the thing you know the next day he was like yo i got this crazy concept and he was super hype about it like i said everybody involved with to pimp a butterfly has a different idea about when exactly kendrick started making the album flylo sure it started right there on the tour bus in between kanye shows it was happening the light was on i think he didn't know exactly the direction he wanted to go but like i said i remember playing him some of these kind of funk inspired things and it really just kind of like he was like oh yeah 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 you know and i think that was kind of why he wanted me to have the opening track that wesley's theory he wanted me to be the the opening because that was the vibe and the kickoff and i asked him too i was like yo are you sure this is the right way to kick off the record you know i don't he's like yes it has to be a certain way and a funk inspired fly low beat would eventually become the opening statement on to pimp a butterfly a hectic cynical song called Wesley's Theory. Hit me! I, I've never seen nothing like that before. He had, you know, every time, everything you hear, it was orchestrated by him. It's not like something where he's like, he just raps and his hands off and then, you know, he passes it on to someone else. He has a vision for when the track stops and goes into the different section and then when it breaks and then all, he's very, very uh, 
hands-on and communicative of those ideas too. During the Yeezus tour, Kendrick's coming to grips with his burgeoning superstardom, but also with where that success puts him in the world. Wesley's theory invokes the actor Wesley Snipes, who spent three years in jail for tax evasion. The first verse is Kendrick assuming the voice of a naive young rapper blowing his advance check. The second verse takes a sardonic turn, implying that in the rigged casino of American life, even an artist who gets rich is just getting pimped out by Uncle Sam. As Kendrick's one-time producer Dr. Dre puts it in a voicemail sampled in the song, Kendrick has seen through the hollow rewards of stardom. He's disillusioned, but he's also inspired. When he records the song, he's pulling ideas from everywhere. It was all a mystery to me up until whenever that happened. This is Joseph Leinberg. He ended up doing a number of things on To Pimp a Butterfly, including co-producing the song How Much a Dollar Cost. But when he first came in, it was to play the trumpet. I'm starting to hear the style of music that he's doing. You know what I mean? I'm hearing the funk. I'm hearing the jazz. I'm hearing the avant-garde. You dig? You know, I'm hearing everything but what I hear on the radio, basically. It was it was refreshing to me. At one point during the sessions, they asked Joseph if he had a trumpet mute with him because Kendrick was after a Miles Davis kind of sound. And I said, oh man, I left it at the studio. I'll bring it tomorrow. And uh, that's when Kendrick turned around. He said, I need that voice. So the trumpet player puts down his trumpet. Kendrick's got this narration written on his phone. Joseph copies it onto a piece of paper, and they put him in a vocal booth. And he just coached me on exactly what he wanted. He knew exactly how he wanted me to phrase it. Because even though I have a deep voice, I, you know, I first went in there, as the four walls, I'm trying to be George Clinton, as the four walls of this cocoon collide. He's like, nah, 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 nah. As the four walls of this cocoon collide, he knew exactly how he, he wanted me to phrase the words. Like, exactly. Hit me! When the four corners of this cocoon collide, you'll slip through the cracks hoping that you'll survive. Gather your weight, take a deep look inside. Are you really who they are to lies? To pimp a butterfly. George Clinton himself also contributes some vocals to this song, so one of the many things happening inside Wesley's theory is a kind of duet between Joseph Leinberg doing his best George Clinton and the real Clinton, who also does a really good George. So I'm saying better metaphors leave metaphors metaphysically in a state of euphoria. I don't know what the hell he's talking about, but it feels good. And I feel the vibe that is moving in a, 
of direction that I feel and I like. I can dance my way out of my constriction without claiming I know exactly what he's talking about. I feel that it feels good to me. To Pimp a Butterfly is an album that arms itself for an uncertain present with ideas and sounds from the past. But it's also the work of an artist with the juice to get actual elders on the phone and pull them into the studio, which is what happened with George Clinton. I didn't even know up my grandkids put me up on him. So when I met him, he was like old soul. I was like talking to somebody my age. He did his homework. He was explaining to me all of his friends, all the people he was working with on the album, who was hooked into the funk from their different perspective. I mean, as I listened to the record, he knew what he was talking about, and he knew what he was looking for, like I say, sonically and vibe-wise, socially. He, he had all that information in his head that what he wanted to do. You're communing with a number of your forebears on this album. You have George Clinton, who we spoke to for this. What were some of the things that you got from those guys when you were able to sit down with them? Because I'm sure it wasn't just a recording session. I'm sure there was, you seem like you would have wanted to get some knowledge from that exchange. I think the main thing I got from them was they still have fun doing it. They never lost the love for it. That taught me so much, you know, just being in there and seeing how much energy they had for the record. And I'm, you know, co-writing songs with these legends, you know, that blew my mind. And uh, seeing that they still have the energy and, 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 you know, they're not, uh, they're not relaxed, you know, they're not, you know, they take the mask off, you know, these these legends, you know, and they're just as humble, you know, and, and willing to work. It, it, it blew me away. It taught me a lot, you know. It taught me about um, really understanding the importance of the position that we're in, and, and never to lose that spark, you know, that we once had when we first heard it. You know, and them guys went in there. We sat. We laughed. I asked a bunch of questions about old stories that, you know, I probably would never tell. <laughs> you know, and and I really. Um, I really understood the the core of artistry, and that's to always feel like a kid while you're doing it. What can we as humans learn from the butterfly? Metamorphosing. Change willingly. Adapt to whatever it is. We probably going through that change right now. We probably getting ready to, I mean, we're leaving the planet. We got to. The title of the album, we were texting back and forth, and Kendrick asked me what I thought it could be. This is Anna Wise. One day many years ago, she was on tour in Idaho, where she ate an entire ghost pepper. Her mouth burned for four hours, and the next day she got a text from Kendrick Lamar. In her mind, these things are connected. She sang on three songs from Good Kid, Mad City, and won a Grammy for the song These Walls. Anna was taking care of her daughter the day we talked on Zoom. You'll hear her voice in here, too. Anyway, the title. And I was thinking of butterflies, but I thought that was kind of silly. And I thought, you know, sometimes your intuition talks to you and you, like, write it off. You're like, no, that can't be it. <laughs> That's not it. Or you get that little inkling and you ignore it and then it, it becomes that. But I wanted, like, a confirmation. So I went to this 
local bookstore with the intention of finding an album title for him. And I went to the metaphysical section of the bookstore and I picked a book and I opened it up and the it was the it was the first page of a chapter and it said conversations with a butterfly. So then I took a picture of that and I sent it to him. I saw the butterfly yesterday when we were on our hike. Yeah, we saw the butterfly on our hike. It was so beautiful. For a while, the album was almost called To Pimp a Caterpillar, which, rendered as an acronym, would have almost spelled Tupac, as in Tupac Shakur, a pivotal rapper in Kendrick's life as a fan and a pivotal influence on this album. Either way, the theme is metamorphosis. After Good Kid Mad City, Kendrick had to find a way to keep growing, in spite of his own self-doubt and in defiance of commercial imperative. Sometimes you have to ask yourself, what would George Clinton do? What wouldn't George Clinton do? The caterpillar sprouts its wing. Was there any trepidation, any concern about being as vulnerable as you were on that record? Well, you know what's funny, man? After my first album, Good Kid, Mad City, was like a, a super commercial success. And um, I knew I wouldn't be able to give that experience again, you know. And, you know, hip-hop, we had this thing, the sophomore jinx. So I took it upon myself. I need to do something that inspires me, you know, and, and talk about what's right now, what's present for me. So um, as funny as it may sound, I've have a I've had a hard time expressing that vulnerability, you know, coming up in person with people, but I found a way to express it through music. That was my way of releasing. That was my way of communicating. So, going back to your question, no, it wasn't an issue. Um, I knew these things were true to me, um, and I knew it'd be true to the listener. And um, whatever accolades and success came behind it, that was secondary. But I made sure I wanted to express myself in a way that was present, you know, because I feel like if I'd have tried to remake my first album again, nobody would have felt it because I wasn't in that headspace to even do that, you know. So having that visit to South Africa, um, it really not only catapulted that album, but just my experience as a human. Next time on The Big Hit Show. Every ending is a new beginning. A pivotal moment on another continent. I say it wasn't until him actually taking that Africa trip that steered it to him saying, I need to make this album. Compton's prodigal son brings home a message. That's where he was like, I got to bring this information back. And the child is father to the man. Come on, Kendrick. Come on up here. He would get up slow and like, put his little smile like, all right, all right. I'll go up there and he'd be like, and then he start doing this thing. Because this is the most dangerous area for a child to speak in front of the class. From higher ground, this is The Big Hit Show. 
It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Taylor Jones and Sabrina Fang. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. Alex McGinnis is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Studio direction and theme music by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jen Eleven is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Music licensing by Search Party Music. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.